3CR and Uprise Radio would like to acknowledge the true owners and caretakers of the land that we are broadcasting on today. We are broadcasting on the lands of the Kulin Nations, and we'd like to pay our respects to their elders past and present. And we'd like to acknowledge and recognise that we live and work on unceded land, and it's land that is or was taken away um, through a part of a prison complex and through the eyes of a prison. And we will continue to discuss that in the show today as Australia continues to be a place where prisons are housed. Content warning for listeners. This program will include discussions of police violence and incarceration and mentions the names of people who have died. If this is triggering for you, please tune out now. Good afternoon, listeners. It's Wednesday afternoon. You're listening to Uprise Radio on Community Radio 3CR. I'm Mercedes and I'm, of course, joined by James and Jackson. How do you both? Howdy. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in again. Absolutely. So I think we might get straight into it. So today uh, is the first program of a two-part series um, exploring incarceration, the imprisoned industrial complex and in so-called Australia and of course abolition. So violence and indeed carceral violence in so-called Australia is woven into the very fabric of the settler colonial state. From its inception with the violent invasion of this land, partly to make way for convicts who were sent here as a part of a program of punitive transportation, to the continued violence committed against First Nations peoples at the hands of police and against people of colour, women and trans and gender diverse people, the punitive elements of the state and the justification of the prison industrial complex seems integrated into the national psyche. Systematic oppression and violence of the criminal injustice system towards First Nations people and children has resulted in First Nations people making up 29% of the incarcerated population despite only 3% of the overall population. There have been 474 First Nations deaths in custody since 1991, and five in this year alone. This ongoing crisis is mirrored by the constant miscarriage of justice, which sees no accountability of the state and its police, as demonstrated in the acquittal of an officer on the trial for the murder of Yamachi woman JC last week. In 2016, the New South Wales government committed $3.8 billion to expand the state's prison bed capacity by 7,000 extra beds through the reopening of jails, the expansion of existing prisons and the repurposing of other correctional facilities. 
At the conclusion of that project in December last year, Corrections New South Wales announced a further increase of 5,000 beds by 2025. In addition to this, the Clarence Correctional Centre has recently opened as part of a public-private venture between New South, New South Wales Government and Serco. Serco, of course, the private company that operates Australia's detention centres, including the Park Hotel Prison, where this week guards allegedly sent away an ambulance that was called for a COVID-positive man being unjustly detained inside. As well as the situation of COVID affecting people in the Park Hotel prison, the negligence of health protocols in New South Wales prisons in regards to COVID has recently been brought into the spotlight. Groups like Justice Action have been highlighting the dangers of COVID in prisons following the outbreaks. So I know that this introduction has been broad, as is the scope of the prison industrial complex. So for today's discussion, we are joined today by Paul Gregoire of Sydney Criminal Lawyers. Paul is a Sydney-based journalist and writer, and he has a focus on social justice issues and encroachment upon civil liberties. Thanks for joining us on Uprise Radio, Paul. Thanks for having me along. So, Paul, this is Jackson, and year after year, we see increases in prison funding, despite report after inquiry after report indicating that prisons do little to make communities safer. What's your understanding of the New South Wales and Victorian government's enthusiasm for large-scale billion-dollar prison expansion. Why do they love it? Well, they definitely do love it, I can say that, uh, because as, as Mercedes mentioned, the uh, in New South Wales they've just put $3.8 billion towards an expansion of prisons, and, and, and once that four years is up, they're, they're starting to plan for more prisons. Um, but I've just read uh, Angela Davies' Are uh, Prisons Obsolete? And I think one thing I gained from reading that book was um, the concept, uh, it broadened my idea of the prison industrial con uh, complex. And so my understanding of the prison industrial complex from the US side was they're making a lot of money from private prisons and labour, like basically slave labour, which is allowed under the 13th Amendment over there. Um, and, and, and how, but that didn't quite translate to Australia, the Australian situation. But I see in the Australian situation after reading our Prisons Obsolete that correction centres for the most part are being run by the state but there's a big industry around these centres, like provisions of food, uh, technologies, all these sort of things are making the prison industrial, um, are, are making prisons profitable in Australia. And I mean, uh, Sisters, um, Debbie Kilroy from Sisters Inside often says, if you're going to build prisons, you've got to fill them up. And so we've, we, we've got this situation in, in Sydney where, and in, in New South Wales where in 2016, we've already got 12,550 people locked up, but we put almost 4 billion towards expanding this, almost double to 7,000 more beds. Now, these prisoners aren't, these people aren't sort of standing outside prison waving going, can you let us in? I mean, they're going to create this room and then they're going to have to, create these new bodies to, to fill them up. So I, th I think there's a, there's a profitability around prisons to make them worthwhile now. Can you reflect a bit on how they are filling those prisons in terms of the, 
uh, the legal frameworks. Uh, you know, it was fascinating. You know, I've also read parts of Angela Davis's book recently. We've had a bit of a book club going, and it was fascinating that you know, once the slaves were emancipated uh, in America, the Southern states quickly developed these black codes, these laws applicable only to African-Americans, you know, things like vagrancy and, uh, you know, homelessness were suddenly criminal offences to move these people into prisons and use that labour. What kinds of mechanisms are happening here in Australia? Because my understanding from your writing, Paul, is that all categories of violent crime in New South Wales have actually dropped uh, since 2000, except for gendered violence is the one category that has increased, possibly due to more reportage. But how are how is the state going to create so many more prisoners with so much less crime happening? Well, if that's true. The crime rates in New South Wales have been going down since 2001. Um, and, and they've been going down since before then, but quite dramatically since 2001. At the same time, the rates of people being imprisoned have gone up. Um, but so what 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 has happened at the, and and it's all it's all it's not just violent crime, it's also property crime has gone down. And as you said, uh, crimes around sexual assault are the only things that have been rising. And there was a spike earlier this year after the Higgins and the Porter uh, revelations. But the rise in those um, sexual assault has been going on for a couple of decades now. So it has been rising quite broadly. And that's the same in Victoria as well. And, and I think this one way, one way that uh, prisons are being filled up is because of tougher laws, tougher sentencing laws. It's when I've spoken to people in Victoria, they tell me the same thing about the uh, tougher uh, bail laws that have that have been implemented over the past decade or the last 10 years or so. So these days, about a third of the people in prison are on remand. So they're, they're people being refused bail after they're arrested. They're not They're not charged. They haven't been. They have no. They haven't been found guilty, but they're sitting in prison, or they or they have been found guilty and they haven't been sentenced yet. And then uh, we've got a lot of other sort of laws that have that have become. Uh, we've got a broader range of criminal offences, truth in sentencing laws. There's higher arrest rates. Um, we've got enhanced police powers over the last 10 years, more targeted policing. Uh, policing's also developed into proactive policing, whereas rather than waiting for a crime to happen and then trying to solve who's, who's uh, you know, committed the crime, now police are more focused on uh, trying to track down perpetrators before the crime is committed, which sounds a bit ridiculous. But in, in Sydney, we have something called the STMP New South, in New South Wales. The New South Wales police have this secret hit list. And these people who are on the STMP, the, I can't remember the correct name for it now, but um, these people are on this secret watch list are subject to more stops and searches. They're subject to more visits at their houses. They're often uh, uh, disproportionately Aboriginal people. And these people don't even have to have committed an offence in the past. They can be placed on this secret watch list because the police have thought they might commit crimes in the, going into the future. So at the same time that crimes rates have gone down, the tough on crime approach is, 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 has risen. And 
I mean, in, in the community, people still think that crime rates are going up. We still have that sort of, that, you know, in the media, it's, it still seems that sort of way because we're being fed that idea, but it's not true. I think, um, Paul, like what you're talking about there, you know, it sounds like the Minority Report movie with Tom Cruise, I think it was, and that predictive of, you know, crime is something that is a pretty hideous sort of example of where some of the modern surveillance technology and modern policing is kind of going. And, you know, I guess one thing when we talk about the prison industrial complex, we talk about being in institutionalised. And can you see a way that, you know, we're kind of becoming institutionalised without actually going into institutions themselves. You know, these kind of technologies are bringing us part of that institutionalization of the state without even having to set foot in a prison itself. You know, the way that if we look at all the responses to, um, you know, the way that we, like you said, we're being predicted of how people are going to be able to respond to crimes that are not being committed yet. You know, the, the Murdoch press and in particular of the media, you know, pummels these ideas out about how um, crime rates are going up. You know, we have ministers over the years talking about African, you know, gangs that are terrorizing you at dinners. You know, all of these kind of things are making us feel that we're a part of this institutionalization of the state without ever actually having to bother to lock us up in prisons, not to discount the fact of what happens to people that do end up, you know, in that part of it as well. But we are all becoming a part of this, you know, huge arm of the industrial complex of prisons. Yeah, and I, um, when you're saying that, it does make me think of the recent approach to the policing of the COVID crisis, which um, did in New South Wales, we, we had uh, the, the police commissioner, Mick Fuller, said they were treating the virus like it was a criminal, which basically mm. meant that everyone was criminalised because you could have been... Um, uh, a carrier of the virus, and 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 that preemptive policing was used throughout the crisis here, and I, and I know in uh, also in Victoria things got quite some of the uh, police brutality was overbearing. Um, so I mean that what you said reminded you know made me think of that 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 we were all criminalised for a period uh, over what was basically a, a public health crisis and could have been dealt with in a different way, but the system we live under just uh, automatically went, uh, is programmed to go towards law enforcement. And our, and our system, it's, it's quite hard to, when I've spoken to, you know, big ab abolitionists in Australia, like Debbie Kilroy or Amanda George, they often, they, they, they often say it's hard to conceive, you know, it's hard to conceive of a world without prisons. But they they make the correlation that it was once hard to conceive um, of a world without slavery, and and so today maybe we are institutionalised in the way that we all uh, can't can't. It's very hard for us to look beyond the prison walls for a solution to what for to crime, what we conceive as crime. But I thought in the Angela Davies book, I would like, I mean, often people, when they talk about going beyond prisons, they'll say, uh, what about rapists? What about murderers? What are we going to do about those? But a great, uh, a great number of people who are in prison are there for drug problems, um, sorry, for drug crimes, or, for, you know, sex work has been criminalised. 
um, all these, uh, you know, if you decriminalise drugs, you've lost a lot of the criminal, uh, the prison population straight away. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. It brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak morning. on air. The bigger the reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there. As prisoners, we can't blame everything on the external. So let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here, and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 you tuned to Uprise Radio on Community Radio 3CR and today we're chatting with Paul Gregoire from Sydney Criminal Lawyers on the prison industrial complex and abolition. As you were saying before, Paul, obviously we've seen an increase in policing um, throughout the pandemic. Uh, the Police Accountability Project have got a lot of that data and extrapolated about where those areas and where fines have gone. Um, absolutely, as is to be expected disproportionately to marginalised communities. And I suppose when you think of that in relation to um, the acronym is not in my head right now, but the the so-called hit list that you were mentioning before uh, in that, yeah, in the in yeah. this preemptive policing, um, the capacity, it just sounds to me like the capacity for that, as you said, it disproportionately affects um, First Nations people, that the capacity for that to just entrench systematically already things deep more deeply entrenched like racial profiling um all of these things that and and also how that affects children and young people because the age of criminal responsibility in australia is 10 years old mm. um and so uh or people who may have been pulled up and stopped as a as a result of a being outside as a part of covid now potentially become part of of that list mm. uh i'm not sure if that's the way it works but that's sort of um that's really problematic because you're you're not only affecting adults here, but you're also preemptively engaging on what what that could be affecting children and detaining children. I think that's a good good point. I hadn't thought about that about about people being pulled up for COVID and then being because all the experts say once you come into the once you come into the sites of police, you are more likely to be pulled up again. And I hadn't thought about that before, but but. So many people were, were caught up with under that police approach, and and that going on, you know, the 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 logic of the past, then they are more likely to be caught up in the police system again. 
but also with those technologies and, and racial profiling that you were just talking about then, um, it just triggered in my mind that they, they have that, what's a biometrics, um, facial recognition technology that uh, Dutton and that have been trying to get up in Australia. Uh, so when you're walking down the street, you can be profiled by CCTV cameras and, and they can match that up to your ID. Uh, photo, but even those technologies where they've where they've implemented these technologies overseas, even those technologies uh, can are more likely to racial profile people and 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 um, indicate people um, of color or women wrongly than than they are for white men. So even the technology's got that sort of uh, bias built into it. Yeah, and and I guess one of the reasons for that is that people building the technology often have those inherent biases as well because they live in a in a racist and sexist society. You touched on earlier, Paul, about the difficulty that people have in envisioning alternatives to prison, and I wonder through all your work, um, you know, looking at both, you know, prison reform versus prison abolition. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what some of your favourite more revolutionary approaches are towards community responses to crime and justice and things that might start to be gaining traction? Like, what do you think can work as a viable alternative? I mean, I've spoken to a few people who are involved with restorative justice in Australia, where, you, where they workshop it with, um, with, with the victim of the crime, the perpetrator, and then other, other people involved. I mean that's the, the main sort of alternative system that I've I've delved into, but uh, as I was just saying, I mean decriminalising drugs, decriminalising sex work. Also, uh, from reading uh, Davis, she she mentions you know like welfare programs. If we had a better welfare system, um, people are less likely to commit crime in the need for money. So, so there's a lot of that. If 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 we invested more in in uh, social services, then then there would be less reason to be locking up people. Um, so a lot a lot of, I guess a lot of what we conceive as crime right now wouldn't necessarily be crime, especially around drugs and sex work and that sort of thing. Um, another another good po point is that a lot of the people who are in prisons um, have mental health problems or cognitive disorders. So they're just using these places, uh, prisons to warehouse people with mental disabilities or poor people. In Melbourne, there's a report from last, from, it was from sometime last decade, I can't remember what, what the report was, but, um, Something like a quarter of the people in Victorian prisons are from 2% of uh, your state's postcodes and half of the people are from 6% of your state's postcodes. So basically we're talking about people from lower socioeconomic circumstances being hit up all the time and put in prison. Wow. Mm. I'd love to check out that report. And if listeners are interested in what Paul was mentioning too about the STMP, it's the Suspect Target Management Plan in New South Wales. And we'll look into that report for our next step as well. Yeah, I'm just wanting to backtrack because um, I, I would like to ask you, Paul, about the current situation in terms of public and private 
Um, but just as you were mentioning before with the increased surveillance, uh, it sort of evoked a thought in my mind when we talk, talk about government and private contracts is that when we're talking about surveillance, we're also talking about data. And so it's not just necessary for the building of these prisons and who is actually going to be the guards and employed through the prison system. It's also what data is collected through these punitive measures, whether it be um, house arrest, uh, the data that's collected from, you know, tracking devices as a result of that, um, the, you know, how all of this information is gained is also becomes an economy of itself, as we know that data is a, is a big economy at the moment. So that can be gained through these public private contracts and relationships, as well as the physical building of prisons. That was just, you know, it was just something that kind of came to my mind. But I, my question is, what is the current state of, you know, where we're at in terms of public and private relationships, contracts um, in New South Wales or Australia more broadly in terms well, of prisons? I had a look before, yesterday I had a look, and including juvenile and uh, youth prisons and adult prisons, there's about 112 correctional facilities nationwide and only 11 of those are private facilities. So in, in New South Wales, we've got 39 correctional facilities with three private. And in Victoria, it looks like you've got 18 correctional facilities with three private uh, companies running them. So I think overall, the, like, that's another difference with the US. I think the US system is more privatised than over here. But um, it's there's still a big, there's, I mean, it's still moving towards privatisation over here. I think by reading that Davis book that what she's talking about happening in the 80s and 90s seems to be happening more so over here at the turn of the century. Um, and an, another thing to do with the private prisons is the big COVID outbreak that happened in Sydney was a Park Lee prison, and that's owned by uh, a private prison owner called GEO Group. So it was a private prison that sort of, you know, let it slip let the virus slip. Yeah, and I think um, that is, that's a US company itself as well. And I think um, what I was going to say before is, you know, if we're looking at, you know, some of the things you mentioned earlier, Paul, and, you know, I guess linking a couple of things together that, you know, it's a really big issue to tackle and it seems like something that is really hard to imagine to not have these kind of things. But, you know, if you look at some of the progress in the US, say over the past decade, you know, we've seen a lot of um, particularly marijuana laws um, be revoked, which has meant a lot of people um, have had their prison sentences, um, you know, revoked. They've been able to be pardoned. Um, there's still a lot of people in, in the US who are, you know, still on petty sort of drug crimes that are in prison. But, you know, that's meant a lot of people have been freed there. And obviously something that, you know, a lot of listeners would have um, been following closely is the Black Lives Matter campaign. And one of the central parts of that, you know, was the defund the police model, which in itself, you know, it, it actually is kind of a broad concept, which is talking about some of the things we're talking about here. And that's shifting money from spending on police and police infrastructure, including prisons, into social services, you know, into, um, you know, having first responders to be social workers, to be healthcare workers. And, you know, I guess um, looking at those kind of things that have happened, you know, things Angela Davis has kind of flagged many years ago, you know, what kind of, with your work with Sisters Inside and, and activists like that, you know, do people see the scope for that kind of thing being able to happen here? Yeah, I think people do. 
yeah, they do see the scope for that to happen here. And I think that um, one thing that in talking to those people, I think I spoke to Amanda George from Flat Out that's, that's based in Melbourne, and she sort of pointed out to me when I was first looking at this sort of, sort of thing that, I mean, a lot of people raise the, mur the murder, like it's, you go, let's get rid of prisons, and they go, what about murderers? And that's the first thing they come up with. But she sort of said, very few, there's very few people who go out and kill people they don't know. They're, the majority are minor crimes, they're non-violent crimes, or if they are violent crimes, they're not, they're not those random ones that we all watch horror movies about and freak out about happening everywhere. And they're, But they're the ones that are first raised to say we can't go ahead with this abolition of prisons. But I remember also like reading a, an article from a First Nations activist in Sydney last year, and she sort of said, it's around 30% of our adult prisoner rate is now First Nations people. But going back 250 years ago, they didn't even have prisons. They didn't have police. And they'd been here, you know, since the beginning of time sort of thing, living without those institutions. I think that's a fantastic point, Paul, that we are trying to imagine a society without prisons. And it wasn't very long ago that there was, in fact, a very thriving society here that didn't have prisons. I think we're probably coming to close to the end of the show, but um, yeah, I think that's a really fantastic point and yeah, really appreciate all your um, insights today. Oh, cool. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Thanks so much for joining us. And yeah. for our next episode, we will be joined with some activists from the Homes Not Prisons campaign. So be sure to tune in for the next episode as well. Thanks, Mercedes. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, James. Uh, Thank you. See you all in a fortnight's time.